Welcome to Campfire History, the early dynastic period and Old Kingdom of Egypt. Written and produced by myself, Brad Sutherland. In the last episode of Campfire History, I talked about how Egypt in 4500 BC was in a long process of climate change where the savannah lands of the pastoralists and nomads changed into desert, forcing the people to move to the Nile and grow crops. In 4500 BC, Egypt was not nearly as advanced as other civilizations in the Near East. 1,500 years later, in 3000 BC, and Egypt was one of the most advanced civilizations in the world, and was ruled by a king who was revered as a living god, and who controlled vast lands and resources greater than any other man we know of at that time. The emergence of Egypt was so sudden that many decades ago, some Egyptologists believed that Egypt had been invaded and conquered by invaders, who subsequently formed the Egyptian civilization. This theory has been proven to be completely inaccurate. The fact that such eminent scholars believed in such a theory, though, demonstrates how quickly Egypt emerged from villages on the Nile to a large nation ruled by one king with knowledge of writing and with very strong religious ideas and ideology. So right from the start, Egypt was phenomenal. It is a civilization that even in ancient times fascinated people such as Herodotus, who wrote about Egypt's history in his histories. In the 5th century BC, Egypt had been ruled by one king for two and a half millennia, which must have seemed like an eternity to the ancient Greeks, just as it does to us five millennia after the emergence of Egypt. Ancient Egyptian history is split into dynasties. For example, Khufu, who built the largest of the three pyramids at Giza, is a fourth dynasty king, and ruled sometime in the 26th century BC, while Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great, belongs to the 19th dynasty and ruled in the 13th century BC. The idea of dynasties is one that Egyptologists have taken from the 3rd century BC Egyptian historian Manito. Unfortunately, his history no longer survives in full and we only have excerpts from later writers who quote his work. It is not always clear why one dynasty ends and another begins. A change from one dynasty to another dynasty is not always because of a change in the ruling family. It seems though, from king lists that survive from ancient Egypt, that the ancient Egyptians used a similar grouping of kings and so Manito probably took the idea from documents similar to what we have today, such as the king list called the Turin Canon. The system of dynasties is one that I find very useful and no doubt Egyptologists also find useful, which is why the system has been adopted in modern Egyptology. The terms early dynastic period and old kingdom have been invented by Egyptologists. These terms were never used by the ancient Egyptians. As we progress through the episodes of the history of ancient Egypt, I will explain why the terms have been applied. So let's start with the terms for the periods covered in this episode. The early dynastic period is fairly straightforward. It covers the first two dynasties, with Dynasty 1 beginning with the first king who ruled over the whole of Egypt, and from the last episode we know that this could be Menes, Narmer or Aha. I say fairly straightforward, but nothing in Egyptology is straightforward, and the early dynastic period is now seen by some Egyptologists as including Dynasty 3. The reason for this is that the early dynastic period of ancient Egypt is a period where many aspects of the ancient Egyptian culture are maturing such as the ideology of kingship and religious beliefs. For some Egyptologists, this period includes the Third Dynasty, 
and in some books you will see the early dynastic period covering dynasties 1 and 2, and in others it will cover dynasties 1, 2 and 3. In this episode of Campfire History, I will be treating the early dynastic period as simply covering dynasties 1 and 2. Now, although the ancient Egyptians liked to view their history as one long line of kings, the fact is that there are some periods in ancient Egyptian history where the central rule by one king breaks down. The period from the end of the early dynastic period until the first breakdown is called the Old Kingdom. The breakdown after the Old Kingdom is called the First Intermediate Period, which is followed by the Middle Kingdom. There are other periods afterwards, but I will talk about these in later episodes of Campfire History. One period that I will mention briefly though, is the pre-dynastic period consisting of a dynasty zero. As I said in the last episode, the kings from the first dynasty all had a tomb at Abydos. They are though, kings buried at Abydos that predate the first dynasty, but who probably did not yet rule over the whole of Egypt. These kings are assigned to dynasty zero in a period called the pre-dynastic period. This is a modern invention by Egyptologists, just like the terms Old Kingdom and Middle Kingdom. Although terms like Old Kingdom and Middle Kingdom might seem confusing at first, they are very helpful. Ancient Egyptian history is an incredibly long time span. The length of the Old Kingdom, for example, is 500 years. That is a period of time equivalent from the reign of Henry VIII in England to the present day. A period in British history that is broken up into many different periods, such as the Tudors and the Stuarts. If you consider the benefits of breaking up European history into periods such as the Early Medieval, Late Medieval, Renaissance and the Enlightenment, then you will be able to see the benefits of breaking up ancient Egyptian history into periods. So let's take a look at the Early Dynastic Period. As I mentioned earlier, the Early Dynastic Period is a formative period, however it is not the case that Egypt's culture, ideology and kingship all were formed within this period of approximately 300 years. Many aspects of Egyptian culture existed before Egypt had been unified under the first king of Dynasty I. If we take a look at the Narmer palette, which is dated to the period of Egypt's unification, we can see many aspects of Egyptian religion and the ideology of the king. On one side of the palette, King Narmer wears the white crown of Upper Egypt and is shown smiting an enemy. He wears a bull's tail and is depicted in a very typical Egyptian style with his chest facing us but with his head and legs 90 degrees from his chest drawn as a sidelong view. On the other side, King Narmer wears the red crown of Lower Egypt and is inspecting the defeated captured enemy. On both sides the king is depicted much larger than the other humans. At the top of the palette, the goddess Hathor sandwiches the King Narmer's name in hieroglyphics, while the god Horus, who is strongly associated with the king of Egypt, is depicted as the falcon. These aspects of ancient Egyptian culture, as well as others on the palette and on reliefs, grave goods and many other artefacts from prior to Egypt's unification, show us that ancient Egyptian culture was not something that was completely invented after Egypt became ruled under one king. We may only have meagre evidence for the pre-dynastic and early dynastic periods, but what we do have shows us that Egypt was magnificent in its culture from before the unification. This does not mean that ancient Egyptian culture was completely in place on the start and that it remained constant throughout its long history. But what we can see is that the king became more central and powerful to ancient Egypt through the early dynastic period, so that in the Old Kingdom 
massive building projects such as the Pyramids of Giza could be undertaken by kings. In early dynastic Egypt, there is a religious practice closely linked to the divinity of the king, which demonstrates how beliefs and practices changed. In the first dynasty, there is evidence that when the king died, many of his retainers were buried close by. Whether the servants chose to end their life and serve the king in the afterlife is unknown. However, there is evidence that they were strangled. In the burial of Aha's successor, King Jer, 318 subsidiary burials were found surrounding the king. Such practices are not unique to Egypt, as such burials have also been found in Nubia and at Ur in Mesopotamia, but there is no evidence of the practice in the burials of the second dynasty kings. Perhaps it was just seen as impractical that important members of the royal staff are all suddenly lost, but perhaps it demonstrates a shift in the religious beliefs in ancient Egypt. Certainly after the burial of King Jer, the practice of retainer sacrifice declines. We do not know the reason why the reign of the first king of the second dynasty, Hetepsekemwe, meant the beginning of the new dynasty. There were changes from the first dynasty to the second. The burial place of the kings, though, shifted from Abydos to Saqqara. The tombs were cut into rock instead of built from mud brick, and they were aligned to true north, and as mentioned earlier, the burial place of the kings, though, shifted from Abydos to Saqqara. The tombs were cut into rock instead of built from mud brick, and they were aligned to true north, and as mentioned earlier, the burying of the king's servants with the king did not occur in the second dynasty. We do not know if these innovations are the reasons for considering Hetexek Emwe the first king of a new dynasty, or if they were more important reasons, such as a shift to a distant family heir. Hetexek Emwe's successors were also buried at Saqqara. However, three or four generations after Hetexek Emwe, burials resumed at Ibidus with the king Peribsen. But why the shift back? We do have some interesting clues. On the Palermo stone, there is an entry in the reign of Peribsen's successor which mentions the hacking up of Shemra and the north. What is very interesting about Peribsen is not just the returning to Abydos to build the royal tombs, but the fact that Peribsen fashioned his name not as the reincarnation of Horus, but of his enemy Seth. The myth of Osiris and Horus was central to the Egyptian belief. The story is that Osiris was king and married to Isis. However, he had a jealous brother Seth who wanted to be king himself. Seth murdered Osiris and cut him up into pieces and scattered them throughout Egypt. Isis collected the pieces and brought Osiris back to life briefly by magic. She then used the short time with Osiris to become pregnant before Osiris died and went to the afterlife. Isis gave birth to Horus, and when he grew up, he had many battles with Seth to revenge his father. The last king of the second dynasty was Kazakhemwe, who returned to more traditional royal titles and had the title of being the reincarnation of Horus. He was originally just called Kazakhem, but his name was changed to Kazakhemwe, meaning the two powers are at peace. A statue of him found at Hierakonpolis has an inscription at the bottom that states, 47,209 northern enemies. Stone vessels from the same shrine show the upper Egyptian goddess Nekbet standing on a ring that contains the word rebel. The inscription underneath reads, the year of the fighting the northern enemy. The evidence points to a time of great conflict resulting in victory for Kazakh Henry. His success would lead to the relative stable period which we call the Old Kingdom. 
where the kings commanded enormous resources and power. Before I talk about the Old Kingdom, I think that now would be a good time to consider ancient Egypt's relationship with its neighbours. Part of the success of ancient Egypt's kings in ruling over all Egypt is that it has borders which were very difficult for invaders to successfully overwhelm. Of course, Egypt was invaded many times, such as by the Hyksos, the Persians, Alexander the Great and the Roman armies of Octavian. However, in general, the Egyptian kings were very successful at defending their kingdom. This was partly due to the enormous resources that Egypt had at its disposal, but also thanks to its geography. To the north was the Mediterranean Sea, to the east and west were deserts that provided an extreme challenge for any enemy to cross. To the south was Nubia. There was evidence that prior to the unification of Egypt in approximately 3000 BC, that Nubia was also going through a similar process. It seems though that this process was terminated by the Upper Egyptians, who sought to control their neighbours in Nubia and restrict the growth of any significant challenge to their dominance of the region. A relief at Gebel Sheikh Suleiman, dated to before the unification of Egypt, shows a giant scorpion holding a Nubian chieftain in its pincers. Nubia was vital to Egypt as it provided manpower, animal skins, ivory, ebony, incense, oils and most important of all, gold. In the 4th dynasty, Egypt established an important trading post in Nubia at Buin. This was abandoned in the 5th dynasty when a group of people called the Sea Group Nubians moved into the area. Other trading partners were the cities in the Levant, especially Byblos. In what is now Lebanon, cedar trees grown there provided the large trunks of wood that the Egyptians lacked and needed to build their boats and for use in their large buildings. Egypt also had important trading links in Palestine, as well as important trading links by sea. Goods from Mesopotamia with cuneiform writing on them may have been the impetus for Egypt to invent its own writing system although it must be said that the Egyptian writing system shows no obvious link to cuneiform and is very Egyptian in appearance. The Old Kingdom consists of dynasties 3 to 8. The period is most famous for the building of the pyramids. However, the pyramids of the kings of Khufu, Khafra and Menkaura at Giza are not the only pyramids built in ancient Egypt. There are actually over 100 pyramids in Egypt. The most obvious question in regard to the pyramids is why were they built? A pyramid is the safest shape in building the highest building possible in the ancient world. However, if the kings of Egypt were simply trying to build an enormous building to reflect their greatness for posterity, then why did many of the successors of the builders of the pyramids of Giza build smaller pyramids? It was not simply a matter that the Egyptian kings could no longer afford to divert so much of the country's wealth into such projects. The smaller pyramids were often accompanied by a lavish temple for the cult of the dead king, and the tombs of the later Old Kingdom kings were extravagantly decorated at great cost. It has been suggested that the reason for the pyramids is as a representation of the primeval mound, which in Egyptian mythology rose in the beginning of the world from a world of just the sky and water. The king of Egypt was the central figure in ancient Egypt. He was a living god, the reincarnation of Horus, and the link between the world of the living and the world of the gods. The king guaranteed the changing of the seasons, the floods of the Nile, and the holding back of chaos. The natural order for the ancient Egyptians was a state called Maat. It is balance in nature, truth, order, law, morality, and justice. 
There was a goddess called Maud, and the offering to the gods was seen as crucial in keeping order in the world of the living. The word hetep, for example, in ancient Egyptian, means both offering and to be at peace. In the lives of the ancient Egyptians, the king represented a vital part of Maat. It is perhaps this concept that allowed for such a great amount of the country's resources to be used on the building of the pyramids, funeral temples and the complexes of the kings. In the early dynastic period, the main form of burial was the tomb dug into the ground with a large mastaba built from mud brick placed on the top to protect the tomb. The word mastaba is from Arabic, which we would translate as raised platform or bench. At the beginning of the third dynasty, the tomb for the king that we call Jossar had the mastaba on his tomb enlarged and then another mastaba was placed on top. Then the process performed again and again until the result was six mastabas of decreasing size one on top of the other. The pyramid was born. The eminence of Jossar to the ancient Egyptians can be seen in the king list from the 19th dynasty, the Turin Canon, where Jossar's name is written in red to highlight his importance. Like Menes, Jossar was a vital figure in Egyptian history. The architect of the pyramid, Imhotep, was later worshipped as a god. The pyramid building was to continue throughout the Old Kingdom. The fourth dynasty was to begin with a king who would build not one pyramid, but three. Sneferu reigned from approximately 2613 BC to 2589 BC, and he decided to build his first pyramid at Myram. Like the Pyramid of Jossa, it was a step pyramid, but where Jossa's pyramid had six levels, Sneferu's had eight levels. Sneferu's second pyramid was located at Dasher and was not built as a step pyramid, but with sloping sides of 55 degrees. However, when the pyramid was just less than 500 feet high, cracks began to appear in the stonework because of subsidence. The angle of the sides were changed from 55 degrees to 43 degrees, but despite attempts to salvage the pyramid, the decision was taken to complete what would be called the bent pyramid and then commence work on a new pyramid. The third pyramid is called the Red Pyramid, and Snefru must have thought he would be the greatest pyramid builder the world would ever see. He was wrong. His successor would build the biggest pyramid in Egypt and the only ancient wonder of the world that still exists. There are many truly remarkable facts about the Great Pyramid of Khufu, or Cheops as he is sometimes referred to, which is the Greek version of his name. The mathematical knowledge required to build the Great Pyramid, the precision of the architecture, the skill of the craftsmen and stonecutters, and the vision of such a great project are awe-inspiring feats in the ancient world. To me though, as a historian who has studied many other kingdoms in the ancient world, what I find incredible is that the power that one king can control. If we just consider the size of the building project, the Great Pyramid consists of over 2.3 million blocks of stone, weighing an estimated average of over 2.5 tonnes. If they worked on the pyramid every single day for say 12 hours on average, they would have to put at least 26 blocks of stone in place every hour, which is one every 2.3 minutes. Every block had to be cut out of a quarry using very basic tools, then moved to the site by teams of workers, where the block would then have to be dragged up ramps and into the correct place. The ability of a central power to control so much of the country's wealth is phenomenal. But it didn't just stop at the Pyramid of Khufu. His successors continued to build pyramids, and although they were not as large as Khufu's Great Pyramid, the surrounding complexes and decorated reliefs within the tombs testify to the fact that the reduction in the size of the pyramids 
was not linked to the lack of resources. The changes in burials are something that occurs throughout Egyptian history. In the New Kingdom, for example, the kings will be buried in tombs cut from the rock in the Valley of the Kings. Egyptian religion will also change throughout its history, and the Old Kingdom in fact sees the rise of prominence of the sun god Ra, who is associated with Horus in this period. The changes in burials are something that occurs throughout Egyptian history. In the New Kingdom, for example, the kings will be buried in tombs cut from rock in the Valley of the Kings. Egyptian religion will also change throughout its history, and the Old Kingdom in fact sees a rise in prominence of the sun god Ra, who is associated with Horus in this period. The title, Son of Ra, is added to the king's titles, and from Dynasty 5, many resources are assigned to the building of sun temples. The last two dynasties of the Old Kingdom, Dynasty 7 and 8, contain many kings over a relatively short space of time. Clear evidence of political crisis that led to a period that Egyptologists have termed the First Intermediate Period, which will be the subject of the next episode of Campfire History. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfire History. The next episode will, unfortunately, not be available until June or July 2012, as I am going to be spending the next academic year studying at the University College London in the final year of my degree. At some point I will be posting an explanation as to why I have chosen the topics covered in the early dynastic period and Old Kingdom, but please download the next episode when available, as I will be covering the very exciting development of the rise of Thebes.